0: Consider this. 100% of owners will leave their business one day, but few are prepared. Are you? Don't worry. You're in the right place with this podcast, Succession Stories. Host Lori Barkman, the business transition sherpa, guides you from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. Lori is a business transition and M&A advisor, specializing in growth acquisitions and selling owner-led companies. She's also the author of the Business Transition Handbook. Get your copy and learn how to avoid succession pitfalls and create valuable exit options. Sign up for a Business Transition newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Show us the love by subscribing to the show and posting a review. We appreciate you. Now, here's this week's Succession Stories with Lori Barkman. Welcome back to the Succession Stories podcast. If you're not already, please give me a follow on Instagram at Lori Barkman. Be sure to hit the subscribe button in your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you listen to this show and enjoy it, do me a favor and leave a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. It will make me smile and it makes a difference, enabling me to reach more people and help them along the way. Pete Walsh is a master coach and a trusted advisor who brings real-life lessons to his family, business, and executive clients. Pete is the first guest on my show who turned down Next Generation Succession. Some quick background. In 1919, Pete's great-uncle and grandfather started Walsh Brothers as a typewriter repair company in the times of the U.S. Wild West. As the third generation, Pete joined the business and slowly worked his way up the company ladder. There were lots of owner branches on the family tree, and Pete felt that his road to autonomy and ownership was too much of an uphill journey. So he said no to family business succession and ventured out on his own. Years later, the family sold the business to Target Corporation, bringing an end to Walsh Brothers after a successful 89-year run. Pete followed his passion for leadership development and coaches family businesses across the U.S. He's also the author of the Family Business Playbook that includes some timeless advice from his grandfather. We had a great conversation about family business performance and what it takes to win. Enjoy this Succession Stories episode about turning down the family business with Pete Walsh. Pete Walsh, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm so thrilled to talk with you today. We have so much ground to cover. I don't know how we're going to fit it into one episode, but let's dive in. Let's get started. First of all and foremost, welcome.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. I've been listening to a bunch of your shows. This is important work, and I'm just really excited to be here.
0: It's really important work. You've been doing amazing things with family businesses for years. And I wanna first start with you and your experience with your own family business. Tell me about your family's company.
1: Yeah. Walsh Brothers Office Equipment started in 1919 in downtown Phoenix, Arizona. My uncle moved from Philadelphia. He had tuberculosis, came out to Arizona, started a royal typewriter company way down in in central Phoenix. We were in business for 88 years. We later then became a steel case office furniture dealership. And so by the time I got there in the... Late 70s, early 80s, we had a couple hundred employees. We grew then to 300 employees. We had lots of different locations. We're actually in a few different sub-businesses within that, but we were in the office uh, and environments business. And it was a really important part of our community. And, you know, this is another thing I'm really interested in, like family, second-generation families working there, really well-known in the Valley. And so it was just a centerpiece of my life.
0: That's an interesting transition from a typewriter business to office furniture and yeah. distributor for Steelcase. If yeah, people know yeah. the Steelcase brand, very, yeah. very popular. That's an innovation in and of itself As I'm sure that story is that transition. Yeah. I'm curious about your role. So your grandfather was the founder. Is that right?
1: He was Richard Walsh. Yeah,
0: Richard and Richard was the founder. So here you are generation three. Tell yeah. me your story.
1: Well, I want to just hit, hit a piece in between two that my father took over the business and then he fell ill, and then my uncle had to take over the business. So this is another thing you and I know about in succession and planning. A lot of different things can happen. Since I was a little kid, I thought, I'm going to take my role and run the family business someday, and that was a dream of mine. I got my degree in marketing and management, went into the family business, started in sales, project management, got to vice president of operations, and loved so many things about it, yet my uncle and I didn't see quite eye to eye on some important things to me. And by the time I got to my mid-30s, I'd lost two brothers and two best friends. And I had decided life was short. And I loved and respected my uncle. And he said, this is going to be yours someday. And he was a workaholic and a micromanager. Love him dearly. Sorry, Uncle Tim. And I thought, you know, I just can't see myself waiting another 20 years. So Karen and I were at church. I like to say I'm highly spiritual, although not highly religious. I'm recovering Catholic. (laughs) The sermon was about finding your special gift. And I prayed in that moment and said, help me find what mine is. I know I can hit a home run for you. Those were my exact words. Three days later, a friend of mine who owned a construction company, we were having lunch and she said, our coach said this. I said, your coach, what's that? And she said, somebody that helps us develop our plans and hold us accountable. And I said, you're kidding. That's a job. Oh, my God. My life turned on a dime. What I didn't realize, Lori, was I was a coaching leader. I was pulling our warehouse delivery installation crews together, talking about how we could get better, rehearsing, all of this. And I was really a coach at heart. So I hired a coach. I love the work that we did. And I went back to my uncle and said, I'm going to go be a coach. And he said, you're kidding me. He said, do you have any assurance of making a living? And I said, none. And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind and all the employees, quite honestly. And I went out and started coaching in corporate America. And then an estate state. A planning attorney came to me and said, why don't you come work with families? And I said, Oh, that's messy. I don't want to do that. And I had he introduced me to a couple families. And I absolutely loved it. I'd been away long enough. I was watching leadership best practices in corporate America and bringing that back into the family. And my life turned on a dime again. And I looked at the guy upstairs and said, I thought my life's work was to run our family business. But as it turns out, my life's work is to impact family businesses all over the world and so I just feel super lucky we then sold the business to Target Corporation about 10 years after I left and that's another thing you and I had to talk about at some point that you know it doesn't always work out the way you think it's going to work out and for our family it was really the right thing you know there were many family members that owned a part of the company none of which that were really working in the business and so and 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 it was like handing off the business to a company that could take it to the next level and really help it begin its next chapter. And that's a hard thing to deal with. Yet, it was really the right thing for the uh, family and the employees and our customers.
0: Absolutely. How old were you, may I ask it generally, in your 40s when you told your uncle that you weren't interested or were
1: you in your 30s? I was in my thirties. I love this too, but you know, this is an important thing. I remember, I told him, like, when I was in my mid-20s, get out of the way, old man. You have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) And then by the time I got into my 30s and 40s and 50s, it was like, he's a pretty smart guy. And so (laughs) I joke. I play with the families I work with. It's an important part of coaching and learning. And I say to mom and dad, shut up and give these kids a little bit of room. And then I say to the kids, hey, shut up and listen to mom and dad. They've got a lot of wisdom. And so I kind of Referee in between. So, but it, I know now it worked out perfectly for us. It really did.
0: They probably were reeling a little bit, right? When you said, I'm not the guy, I'm not going to take over, because it was probably assumed as a fait accompli, right? That you were coming in, you were successful, you're rising through the ranks. People, people expected you to. Assume a certain role, and and in succession, if we can just put it out there, that there's really two core types: ownership succession and leadership succession. Yeah,
1: definitely. So let's
0: talk about both. You were yeah. assumed to be a leadership successor for your uncle yeah. to take over a CEO. Yeah. What did they communicate to you on the ownership side?
1: well in the ownership side there was a state planning in place yet for our family and this is the other thing you know by then when my grandfather left, he left a third, a third, a third to the siblings. But then, in the next generation, there's a bunch of people that have little pieces of it. And you and I know that that it gets a lot more complicated. So, truthfully, for a big company to come in and write one check to the family, that was a lot less complicated than really trying to iron out. And I'm the youngest of our generation, or one of the younger. So I'm now 61, but it, so at the the time I was in my early 50s. And a lot of those generations were in their early 60s. And they had these shares of a company business. So again, in their 60s, do they want to have a check that will help them for their retirement? Or do they want to double down on the next generation, making this, you know, investment payoff. So for a lot of families, it just, it gets more complicated as you get into the third and fourth and fifth generation, as you know. There's a thing called pruning the family tree that you might know. And and I have letters actually sitting here in my desk from my grandfather to his brother in the 1930s saying, you know what, you ought to come to work and be more focused and set a good example. And so he bought out his brother in the 30s. So, you know, sometimes you have to prune the family tree.
0: You do have to prune the family tree. It also is important to underscore for the audience that we can assume all we want about the next generation taking the baton and running with it. But unless we really check in and know if that is that what they want and are they qualified? You can be one and not the other. And in your case, you were highly qualified, but you didn't want it.
1: No question. And you and I both know that when the business was just selling metal desks in the 1960s, well, by the time I was there in the late 80s, early 90s, we're selling cubicles. That's a lot more complicated, a lot more moving parts. And in most of the families that I work with, that's a similar story. Business has gotten more complex. It's more demanding. And you might want a professional manager, an executive team. We'll talk about that and mixing families family, and a professional non-family members. But it's really doing a disservice to that next generation to simply assume, okay, now do you want to run this $50 million construction company? It's like, that's a big job. And you you probably shouldn't just put that off on your son or daughter, right?
0: Yeah, they have to certainly want it. And they, they have to have the skill set. And heavy is the head that wears the crown. It's Very a lot good. of responsibility. Right.
1: Right. And then when you get in-laws and you get cousins and then that heavy crown, now this is part of where I come in, somebody to come in and say, hey, we did an assessment we're now looking, we're getting 360 feedback from others. And I know you think Joe is a really good kid and really smart, but yet the employees don't really respect him or he doesn't have the skill set. So many times when I come into a family, it's my job to help them have a process. That's the important thing, a a legitimate process. So because you know, and I have a couple kids and and probably they, they might each say, well, you're the favorite. And it's It's like, no, I love you all equally, but that's a hard thing. So then for to get some outside help, experts that can come in and say, hey, here's a way that we can measure leadership and competency and personality types. And so that's an important piece of the process to have a way to objectively measure capabilities and and motivation.
0: Which is a big part of this book that you've written. You've written a book called The Family Business Playbook. And thank you so much for sending it to me. It is chock full of, like you said, exercises and food for thought that a family can walk through on their own. Certainly if they have a coach like yeah. yourself were to help them through some of these challenges and work through what needs to be facilitated that a coach is such a is such an important role. And I see a lot of sports analogies. Did you play some sports? I'm I'm sensing that you did. You know.
1: Well, it's ironic, because I wasn't very good. But my coach, my Little League coach, he I wrote a first book coach to win the leadership game. He built a relationship with me, he taught me the fundamentals. And the backdrop of that book is this idea of deliberate practice. Vladimir Horowitz was the best piano player on the planet. And he said, if I stop practicing for a day, I notice, in two days, my wife notices. And in three days, the critics notice. And I thought, what? wow that's so important so i use the sports analogy like to give them exercises on communication conflict resolution goal setting because we got to keep practicing so uh i don't really know what channel espn is on my dial i i am a tortured golfer i would say that but <laughs> but in performance, whether it's athletics or music, emergency response teams, they got to practice to be their very best. So I teach families how to rehearse, bring the whole family together at the summer retreat and start talking about these things and communicating and getting the conversation started early when they're like in middle school and high school. So everybody's starting to get indoctrinated. And I saw something last week, which was so good. And the guy said, you got to be the CRO, the chief reminder officer. So you have to keep reminding the family this is not a given. This is, we have to work at this. We got to keep practicing. So I, that's why the sports analogy, I think, works well. This episode is sponsored by the best selling book, The Business Transition Handbook How to Avoid Succession Pitfalls and Create Valuable Exit Options business owners will learn how to navigate the emotional and practical nature of the transition process to avoid exit regrets. It's crucial to start planning when time is on your side so you don't leave money or your happiness on the table. Reading this book, you'll have Lori Barkman, the Business Transition Sherpa, guiding you along the way. To download a free copy, head to thebusinesstransitionhandbook.com that's the business today.
0: One of the things in the book that I noticed was a phrase about landmines. Yeah. Landmines are tricky, right? There's risk tripwires that can cause irreparable damage. What are some of the more common landmines that you see with family businesses these days?
1: I you know, I think about Personality styles. That was a central story with me and my uncle. He was a very conservative, planful guy, attention to detail, and I was more of a big picture person, uh, new ideas. And so personality styles, values, what are our values? And you know this too, that when the kids all grew up at the same table. That's one thing. But when you start to get cousin consortiums is what we call them, there's a different lot of different values. And then there's just behaviors and norms. Hey, here's how we treat each other. And so we start having bad emails or we have conflict that causes a rift in the family for years. So the landmine detection map is in the book and it's also at the website. And it's, it's a graphic that shows you think here's what's going to happen and then here's what can happen and the damage it costs. So yeah, it's really important and to have awareness and education about these things.
0: Yeah, for sure. You also talk about reflection points. Yeah. We're so busy, it's difficult to reflect, but your process pushes that idea. We need to reflect. What do you think are some of the more challenging reflection points for families
1: to agree
0: on, to align on?
1: Yeah. Well, I have this idea, this concept of reflective practitioner, you and i are on a team we say here's what we're going to do when we meet with the client or the employees and then afterwards we get back together and review the game film and say hey I thought you said you were going to go left, but you went right. So that's that idea of really learning how to reflect on everything you're doing. Okay. And then I think what your question is, one of the hardest things is to just be really honest with each other, but with a compassionate heart to say, I know you meant well, Lori, and I know you said you were going to do X, but are you aware that you did Y? And you're like, I did. I wasn't even aware of that. So, so much of this work is about self-knowledge, self-awareness and, and in a family, we see each other a certain way. So again, I just have to keep going back to objective outside feedback and, and a compassionate warm heart in delivering it. You know, Lou Holtz said, critique The performance, not the performer. And that's really good. So I I try to teach them how to be reflective practitioners.
0: One of the topics that I would imagine is difficult for families is thinking about the life cycle of the business and creating a big picture for the family, this family vision. People might have a vision, they might not. They might have it, but it's not congruent with the other person's, right? Mm -hmm. Especially as these companies get larger and larger. And I want to talk about the life cycle of a business. If we think about companies as people, mm-hmm. it's like work, if people are familiar with that work. Yeah. And it's something I talk about in my workshops uh, a lot, and, and I do address it in my book, too. From your perspective, maybe just a high-level summary, how do we think about company life cycles?
1: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I speak in metaphors and analogies, just like the life cycle of a person. You uh, are an infant, you're a teenager, you're young, 20s, 30s, then you get more mature. So that's the way to look at the business. And a lot of businesses their markets are maturing and changing so even if you are doing certain things right your market could be changing but one of the other things that I know you and I will think about and talk about is going from owner operator to owner investor and so getting a professional management team and so I have some families that were really working with that to say like and it's it kind of counterintuitive to how a family thinks like well the best thing is for us to be there at the table well you can be there at the table as a board member, but you would be really smart to hire a president and have a board and create governance. See, that's the other thing. I teach them how to practice being a board, and that's a different skill set. So it could be that the business needs to change hands, but it could also be that the business now needs to be run in a different way.
0: Or is there a natural ending point?
1: Definitely. And can that
0: be a conversation. Your Definitely. family's experience was to sell to a third party. And I guess we could call that a natural ending point. The other type of natural ending point would be to close the business, which does right. happen as well. Yeah. And it can feel very uncomfortable, can't it?
1: Well, you know, it's funny you said that. I love Walsh Brothers. I've got a bunch of Walsh Brothers stuff on my book shelf back here. Um, It was like chloroforming our favorite uncle, you know, but it was the right thing to do. It really was to let that go on into the next iteration. And it is super hard. But that's the other thing I wanted to mention today. We don't get to pick our spots. So we sold our business got a check in our hand and the meltdown of Lehman Brothers happened 30 days later. So over the next year or two, the value of the business dropped considerably because of real estate, everything dropped. And so, and I said to my uncle one time, you're either really smart or really lucky. So I have a couple of my clients in the last year or two that had a good business. It's doing very well, but they are men in their early 60s with a wife and family and they're like, you know what? I'm going to sell the business now because the one guy, it's like, hey, if something happens to you, what do you think is going to happen to the value of the business? Or do you see your significant other being at the table to try to negotiate the value? So that's an important thing to remember. We don't get to always pick our spot. So sometimes you say for my family and for our stakeholders, all of our employees, it would be good for me to exit now and not chance what could happen.
0: Well, it's difficult to time the market. That story you just told about Lehman Brothers, oh my goodness, 30 days from the crash, unbelievable. Nobody had a crystal ball. You didn't know that was going to happen, but it just underscores the point you can't time the market. Now, you guys got very lucky, no doubt about we it. Did. But you we really did. can't.
1: You really just can't. No, you didn't know no. that was coming. And, and of course, here's another thing, important thing in my work. Put your ego aside. You know, we always think like, oh, I got this. I got figured out. And my, you know, I'm the greatest. And And you and I talked about this a little bit before the show. You got to build a team around you. The value of your business is really directly related to the people you have on the team the continuity of the business. and I have to say that I run into some people who will remain nameless at the moment that kind of the world revolves around them at their business and it's like, hey, you you're really not doing the right thing for your business. The, the better thing is to be level five leadership, servant leadership. How do you help your team? How do you help your next generation? How do you one way you help them is to get out of the way. Let them make a few mistakes. Let them learn on their own. Yeah. It's critical.
0: Yeah, the point you made earlier about owner-operator to owner-investor also speaks to people thinking of their business as an asset versus a job.
1: Yeah, it's very Now, maybe good. in
0: family businesses that are larger, you had 300 employees, it was quite a significant revenue business. No one family member owned it. It was shared across the cousin cohorts as you, the coalitions, as you said. And I'm curious about smaller businesses, maybe the founder, let's think about Gen 1, listening to this show. And now they're wondering, when should I start a family board?
1: Mm. Is it
0: too soon? Should I be larger some other folks who' have been on my show that do recruiting, for example, Bruce Walton, his episode, he talked about a business being maybe twenty million when you have an advisory board and then maybe $40, 50 million when you uh, set up a fiduciary board. Do you have any benchmarks or anything to share?
1: I really don't in terms of those numbers, but I do think as you're you're talking I I err to the side of having more voices at the table. Again, that's counterintuitive. The world, in my estimation, is getting more complicated, more dynamic. The more you can put other peers at the table. And again, that's a kind of a scary thought. I've got to kind of reveal a little bit of who we are. But I think, again, back to practice, starting to get that family just talking about, what do we think about this business? Where it's going to go? The founder, as you said, helping the founder have a vehicle to start to explore that it is really and that's an, an important piece of coaching it's really hard to go home and start talking to your family about i'm thinking of whether i should do this or that well of course you're going to freak them out so i think the numbers you said were very good if you reach a certain point you ought to start developing a family board and then outside advisory board is is really good as well
0: yeah it's always good to get trusted advisors around you who are independent.
1: Right, but remember, that takes time too. So you know that. I've seen some teams and some boards where it's like, ah, and things just aren't clicking here. Now we get a new board member and things are kind of jiving. They're kind of working. And so every team, that's the other thing I wanted to say, is like every team takes on a different personality at a different time. And and the other thing is, you think you have the right team and then something happens and you've got to change it out. So that's why that idea of practicing, developing, building those muscles is so important and, and works really in every case.
0: Absolutely. Just to share from my own experience, I was recruited to a family advisory board Mm. a couple of years ago, and we were Mm. a startup board at that time. So now we've been together a couple of years. And it was really interesting. I mean, our story is still unfolding. And this is the second generation. It's three brothers. And I give them a lot of credit that it's not easy to, to start an advisory board from scratch, have three complete independent people who are not friends with the family we were not not golf buddies yeah yeah truly independent and yeah. you know we're not directing management we're not certainly not involved day to day operations at all it's purely strategic and we are for them we are for the brothers and from time to time you and I should check in on it but it's a it's a really good example of of saying the brothers saying to themselves we need to do something different. We need to have some outside perspectives to help us. So I just want to give them a a quick shout out and kudos that they've done that.
1: Well, it's another principle of coaching. A good coach stretches you a little bit, stretches you out of your comfort zone, right? If you're just, if you're too comfortable. So I think for that family, I say kudos to them. And yeah, I'm sure it's a little bit uncomfortable, but when it's uncomfortable, you know you're building some new muscle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's really
1: great. And what a what a gift for you to get to have an impact because I'm sure, like me, you know, I have some families that I get to impact that I think it'll have an impact for generations. That's really sacred work.
0: It really, it really is. I want to start to wind down yeah. today's conversation and have some ideas about what people can do to take action. It's great that they listen. It's great that they learn. But I want the audience to think about what they can do. Hmm. Best time to start planning was yesterday, but here we are today. (laughs) What What are two to three things, Pete, that we want family business owners to really think about and start to roll up their sleeves?
1: Well, I think you and I would both say working on your business, not in your business. So the first thing is you got your head down and you're just, you know, producing results, carving out the time whether weekly, monthly, yearly, quarterly, to have some of these strategic conversations is the first thing. The second thing is you need to have ongoing assessment. So I have the scorecard, the landmine detection map. Um, I have some 50 skills assessment. As professionals, we need to sit down on a regular basis and gauge our performance and have a performance review. That's, I think, a tricky thing in a family. But you and I both know in super well-run companies, you have a performance review and you set development goals. Those are some things to do to just step back and say, hey, how are you at these skills here, listening, having an open mind, communicating? And what are one or two or three things you're going to work on between now and our next time we get together and then how are we going to hold each other accountable? So I think, you know, carving out the time, having some way to assess our current state, setting some developmental goals. Those are different than business goals. Okay. I'm going to work on being a better listener with my people and then finding ways to measure that. I think those are some important things they could start with. And I I forgot, have some fun you know, I just still believe life is short. My father left at fifty-two years old. Um, have some fun. If you're not having a little bit of fun, when you we have fun, we're we're better learners. We're gonna have a better team. You know, Bill Belichick is uh, one of the best coaches on the planet, and surprisingly, he says one of our most important nights of the years are bowling and movie night. And I thought that's so weird for him because he's kind of a bit of a dry guy. He's kind of a <laughs> bit of a stoic guy. Right. And he, with these families, I teach them how to practice having fun together, have a family meeting. And that takes years to develop. It really does. The first one or two, it's real awkward. Second or third, it gets better. Fourth or fifth, they start to know what it, what it's like to interact with each other. So those are uh, family meetings are really important thing.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's really good. I want to talk to you about your grandpa. He is mm. present in your book, which is really cool. Coach Pete's grandpa, timeless advice. You've got that in in the back of the book. This is a a good reason why sometimes I start by reading books from the other side. I don't know why I didn't do it with yours, but a lot of times I do that. And here it is. These are letters from your grandpa in 1960 that you included in the book. Tell me about that.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm kind of getting choked up. Thank you for bringing it up. My grandfather was trying to win the hearts and minds of the employees in the 1950s and 60s. And he was writing to them about how to make this a great company, how important it was. We had profit share and we had bonuses in each part of the company. He said, I want this to be like your company. He even bought land and had the employees build summer homes up in the other part of the state so they could all take a week or take a weekend and go up and have their own like summer home up in the woods. I mean, he was just very really into that. And so when I was writing this book, I saw his papers and, and I told you earlier, he's got the seven essentials for accomplishment. And I showed it to Karen. I said, they're still totally accurate today. Make a list be thoughtful, learn something. And so I had this idea, which is like, hey, you're going to be a co-author with me on this book. And so when I got, and I always wanted to work with him. So it was just like a dream come true on several levels. I got the first copy of the book. I wrote in the front cover, you're a published author 50 years after your death. And it's another thing I want to just put a plug in for all of us write in a journal, write a book, I know you've written a book, write these things that your children and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren, I have these letters at my desk. Now, luckily, we were a typewriter company. So he was typing all these things, many of them, then I just feel like take me back to him 100 years ago. So write down your thoughts. And I, I just, it was a real dream come true to get to work with him.
0: Oh, that I think great. it's a
1: fun part of the book. And it's timeless advice.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In and of itself, that's a reason to get this book. There's some timeless Aww. advice there. I really enjoyed that. And Pete, if people want to get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing, how you're helping family businesses, how can they do that?
1: They go to family business performance dot com. Pretty simple family business performance. But there we have the landmine detection map. We have the family business scorecard. There's a lot of videos. There's just a lot of free tools. And, you know, I'm 61 years old and I love what I do and I feel very honored to get to do it. And I want to impact as many families as I can while I'm still here. So really take me up on the free tools. Send me a note. Ask me a question. I love getting to help families. And and I just really can't thank you enough for letting me come here and just talk a little bit about it. I know we have a shared passion for this work and it's just so important. It's so important.
0: I, I agree. I think that our content of the books are very complementary. We both share the opinion that family businesses need to be purposeful and have a strategic plan, not only for their business, but for their future transitions, because it can be more complex. And it isn't the kind of thing you want to kick down the can or kick right. kick the can down, down the road. The you right. want to, you really yeah. need to start working on things proactively. And the larger, more complex it is, of course, you want to have trusted advisors by your side, and people like you, Pete, that really can help bring a sense of humor, bring a focus, bring frameworks and a playbook, mm. yeah. and truly a valued coach. So thank you so much for joining me on Succession
1: Stories today. It was my pleasure. And could I leave you with a quote? Please do. I like to say coach to win the leadership game because leadership's getting trickier than ever. So I think a coaching mindset, being curious about what makes everybody tick, being curious about how we can get to get better is like if you can fall in love with that, then you really got something and it helps you get up and face the challenges of being a business owner every day. I really appreciate you letting me be here today. It was really fun.
0: It was really fun. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for all of your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen and also follow us on YouTube. And if you want to maximize the value of your business and avoid succession pitfalls, reach out to me at TheBusinessTransitionSherpa.com. Join me next time for more insights from transition to transaction here on Succession Stories. Until next time. I hope that today's episode resonated with you. What actions will you take as a result? If you want to grow, sell, or transition your business, our strategic transition planning process provides clarity and objectivity on the big questions that may be weighing on your mind. Make an intention and take the next step. Set up a complimentary consultation with me to discuss your goals at thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. That's thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com.